This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're glad you could join us again today. Well, after years in Afghanistan and Iraq, many of our troops have been returning home with traumatic brain injuries, stemming from their time in combat, and as a direct result of exposure to blasts, improvised explosive devices, better known as IEDs, and bullet wounds to the head and other traumatic events. Unfortunately, traumatic brain injuries are also cropping up in sports, mostly on our football fields, where repeated concussions and head trauma are now considered to be the leading causes of long-term harm. Well, today on Ringler Radio, the subject is traumatic brain injuries, both from the battlefield and the football field, along with how those injuries are affecting the individuals and their families, and also discussing what is being done today to help prevent TBIs and what's being recommended in the future. Joining me today is my Ringler colleague, Anne-Marie Von Bank. Anne-Marie heads the Minneapolis-St. Paul office of Ringler Associates and is a member of Ringler's board of directors. She's respected by both the insurance industry and the trial bar, and she's known for her creative problem-solving skills and common-sense approach to settlement planning. So welcome, Anne-Marie. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks, Larry. Good to be here. Well, great, Anne-Marie. And our special guest today is attorney Gordon Johnson, one of the nation's leading brain injury advocates. He's past chair of the TBILG, the Traumatic Brain Injury Law Group, which is a national association of more than 150 brain injury advocates. He's spoken at numerous brain injury seminars and is the author of the most widely read brain injury webpages on the internet. Uh, Gordon is from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and he joins us here today on Ringler Radio. Great to have you, Gordon. Thanks for having me, Larry. Great. Hey, Gordon, tell us how you first got involved in uh, the whole area of brain injury litigation. What prompted that? Well, the, the, I guess the starting point would be that I had a fairly significant brain injury myself when I was 21 years old, and it dramatically changed my life. It changed uh, my career choice from I was going to be a reporter to I ultimately um, failed at that career and had downtime and went off and went to law school instead. That was not clear to me at the time that it happened, but through the brain injury advocacy I did much later, I realized that the core event that had changed my life in that year when I was 21 and 22 had been the car wreck that I'd had and the brain injury I'd suffered in it. When I began representing people in brain injuries, it was in the early 1990s, and I was a general practice lawyer who had a fair mix of personal injury cases, and one client came to me with a brain injury and it was clear to me that this young man had been substantially changed because his wife worked for me as a secretary. So I heard the stories of the challenges in his life every day, but the doctors that he was seeing for this injury were not getting it. They weren't understanding that he was changed. They thought he should be better in a few weeks, and he mm-hmm. was his problems were lingering well past a year. 
So I, thinking it was a big case, understanding that it was was quite symptomatic, I went off to the National Seminar to understand better what was going on with him. And when I went to the seminar, it clicked for me, and I realized that this was a major issue, that there um, needed someone like me. There were no brain injury lawyers in the state of Wisconsin at the time. And I just decided doing that, and that was what I was going to be. What came along is four years later, the Internet opened up for me, and I did the first major web advocacy pages on brain injury, and after that, I was, you know, I had the opportunity to do nothing but brain injury because the phone was ringing from the web pages we had written. Well, you know, it's interesting how your own personal experience, which is uh, something that I think a lot of our audience wasn't aware of, uh, took you to your life's calling, which is an amazing, uh, amazing way to go, and uh, that's a very interesting perspective that you bring to uh, to your work every day. Tremendous. Yes. And I'm one of those people who had a remarkably good recovery from a fairly significant injury, but. I was young. I had the opportunity to go to law school to help me retrain myself to think, um, to control my emotions. Um, but so many people don't get that opportunity, and it's much harder. Right. Hey, Gordon, one of um, the demographics of people suffering brain injuries um, today are, you know, our troops, people coming back, our, our guys coming back here. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about combat brain injuries and, you know, what the causes are? Well, the causes of brain injury in combat is combat. Um, every, you know, the goal of combat is to kill your opponent. Short of killing them, you are trying to damage them in some way to disable them from killing you. Um, since there's, since the invention of the club, the goal has been to knock the other guy out and, and to disable him by in the most vulnerable spot is most often the head. Um, so, by, because of combat, and not just because of combat that might have started in Iraq, but combat, you're going to in, inevitably have head injuries to those people who are not killed by the blows to the head. Um, that's just the facts of fighting a war. Um, it's as inevitable as a brain injury being caused in your opponent in a boxing match. The goal is to cause a, a disabling injury or death in your opponent and that goal is often successful. Well, what are some of the symptoms of a brain injury that you would see coming back from the battlefield, for example? Well, the obvious brain injuries are the ones that get hospitalized. You know, there's there's a spectrum of brain injury from catastrophic to severe to, to mild. The ones that seem to be getting the most conversation now, the ones that happen the most often, are the mild brain injuries. These are injuries that typically would not have taken someone out of combat if you're talking 25, 50, 100 years ago. Um, these injuries now are beginning to, under the significance of these injuries in the way in which people clinically present themselves later are now beginning to understood which is why we are hearing so much more now about the milder brain injuries than we did after World War II or Vietnam or these other uh, major conflicts where there are far more injuries than we than we saw in Iraq. Gordon, do you, you know, some people have said that traumatic brain injuries are a new injury unique to the war in Iraq and, and they don't recognize that this did happen back in previous wars. Do you think that these brain injuries were overlooked or undiagnosed? throughout our history? Well, it, it's interesting because it, it to some degree it depends on the nature of the combat. Um, 
there were certainly more head injuries in World War II than probably any other combat because of the scale of the combat. But the combat in World War II, the battle lines moved. And you didn't have the same sort of dynamic that you had in World War One, where people sat in the same spot for years, bobbing shells back and forth. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, as Tom Hanks is hitting the beach, they are—they probably have done the best job of portraying a brain injury that I've ever seen. And it's very clear that he's suffering a concussion. He's got that two or three seconds of complete confusion. He's very fortunate in that period of time where he isn't functioning at all cognitively that he isn't killed. He lives through it, gets on the beach, and has to keep fighting because he doesn't have a choice. You don't have somebody sitting as a replacement ready to take you out, and there's no sideline evaluation. You're in combat. You have to keep going forward. So in major wars like World War One or World War Two, you have combat, you're going to have brain injury. But if the brain injury is of a mild kind and you have recovery cognitive function, at least apparent cognitive function within 20 seconds, and you're not killed during the period of disorientation, you're going to go on. The difference in our more modern wars is we have greater access to medical care on the battle lines. Um, we are not, um, you know, especially in a war of occupation such as in Afghanistan or Iraq, it's much easier to assess whether or not an individual has had this um, mild brain injury and to try to um, treat that symptom before the symptom winds up getting them killed by the next bullet because they were too confused to respond. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, a lot of our audience has heard terms over the years like with troops, like shell shock, hysteria, post-traumatic stress disorder. Explain to our audience and differentiate the ter those terms, uh, shell shock versus hysteria, post-traumatic stress. Tell us about that. Well, shell shock is probably now considered to have been PTSD. Um, but when you look at the actual records of, and go back to the medical literature that was written after World War I, which is where the term comes from, probably two-thirds of the patient, they're labeling with shell shock, um, which is then determined to be a psychiatric diagnosis. In fact, it had a head injury. I went back and did some writing on this, I don't know, five, six years ago, and much of that stuff's still online. But, you know, if you look at the Lancet articles, which is the British Medical Journal, they are describing symptoms that are very clearly post-concussional. Um, even one of the guys has lost his sense of smell, and they consider this to be a hysterical loss. Hysterical meaning it's not actually real. It's something, your psychiatric thing that your head is made up, where loss of smell is one of the most common symptoms of what happens after a traumatic brain injury because of the location of where the olfactory nerves are in relationship to the trauma that you likely see inside of a head. So... You have these terms getting thrown around. Today, we're doing a better job of distinguishing between PTSD and TBI. But the important thing to understand is that these two things are going to happen together in combat. Let's take the the um, Tom Hanks scene landing on the beach in B-Day. All right, he is getting off a boat. He is being put in the most psychic, you know, the, the greatest psychic fear event he could possibly have been in in his life. You know, the Germans are on the beach, there's shells going all around him, and his, you know, comrades, his teammates are being killed left and right, and then he gets a concussion. Now, 
if he doesn't come out of his disorientation very quickly, he'll be the next victim of the bullet. Um, perhaps because of the hypervigilance of combat, he manages to find his way back to cognitive functioning. But he's in the middle of this event that would have every emotional fear component you can imagine, and he's recovering from a concussion. Um, all of this is going on at once, and both the PTSD makes him more vulnerable to the concussion, and the concussion makes him more vulnerable to the PTSD. And these two conditions are going to feed into each other and make the the total greater than some of the parts. That is a, a, the an easy way to illustrate what's going on, but that element is what's going to happen in almost any combat situation because you don't have just a TBI and you don't have just PTSD. The two are going on at the same time. Very interesting. Yeah. Gordon, you shared um, the story about your secretary, Savannah, and yourself, of course, but can you share a real-life story of a client you've worked with who suffered a combat brain injury and how they overcame their obstacles? I have not worked with as many clients who have um, combat brain injuries as civilian injuries. Um, I think if you look at any um, story from from those people being treated in the in the VA, uh, you're going to see similar patterns. Now, um, but I don't have as much first experience with those type of injuries as as I do with um, more vehicle wrecks and, and now getting to be more and more football. Well, Gordon, what should a family member do if uh, they see that their loved one is suffering from a combat brain injury, for example? what It has a big effect on the family as well. Well, I guess it's probably not that much different than any brain injury. In ter- and the survivor's network, the, the caregiver network is probably the single uh, biggest variable in terms of of, of positive or negative outcome. What makes it more complicated for the combat vet is that you invariably are going to have PTSD along with the symptoms of, of concussion, the post-concussion symptoms, or, or if it's a more serious injury, the more um, clear-cut and easily defined symptoms of a moderate or severe brain injury. The key is, you know, when we start thinking about um, the best approach, we we have something we can learn from the model that we're now seeing in terms of treating sports injuries. The goal after a sports concussion today is one remove the person from from the event which could cause another brain injury, and then and give them rest, quiet, lack of stress until the recovery has a chance to take hold. That of course is exactly opposite what would you would happen if you were in combat. You know if you're playing football, you get a concussion, they take you out of the game. They don't even want you to go to class now for two, three days a week. In contrast, you're still in combat and you're still exposed to all these extraordinarily severe stressors and risk of another head injury. Um, So if you get home safely, um, you're still going to have to go through that whole um, clear the instrument period that is nest that we were now realizing we need to do more and more of for um, children playing um, contact sports. Um, so we've got to find a way to first reduce the stressors, reduce the multiple demands on the brain because it's in multi-processing, um, multi-attentional demands that we seem to create the greatest um, areas of decompensation. So to try to keep exercising the brain 
but doing it in a way in which it does not get overwhelmed. And so we have to, you know, small building blocks of rebuilding the networks that um, were built there um, during our teen years and into our early adulthood. Interesting. Important um, question for you. You know, as a country, do you think that we're doing everything we can for the mental health of our veterans and anyone dealing with a combat brain injury? Well, we're doing a lot more in terms of the, the people who are coming back from the war and terror. Um, we don't know what all the answers are in treating mild brain injury. I have my own theories. My my most cogent theory is that we should send people back to college because we learned our behavioral issues. We learned our cognitive functioning in school. And it's not a bad place to relearn it as well. Um, but we're doing an awful lot more for, for our vets than we did when the people came home from Vietnam. Um, the problem is that those people who came home from Vietnam um, and had suffered brain injuries, and there was also some significant exposure to cerebral malaria, which has, can cause similar problems and may explain an awful lot of the PTSD diagnosis from that period. We are not giving them the treatment that we're giving people who are, have more recent injuries, but those vets are now reaching ages where um, their normal decline in cognition is catching up with an accelerated damage because of the um, injuries they suffered. So, it's in many ways more important that we um, come up with a treatment model to treat those people who are 30 years out and now reaching um, early early dementias, really Alzheimer's as a result. So we're doing much better mm-hmm. with those people in the last decade. We're not doing a good job at all with anybody who's older. Than I don't think there's any question that we're uh, trying to improve uh, what we do for these uh, combat veterans coming back with these injuries uh, compared to what we used to do, and uh, it's going to be a struggle. And, of course, money is always an issue, and it's uh, it's an ongoing ongoing effort, and I'm I'm just glad that we're all uh, involved and, and that you specifically, Gordon, are out there with a voice for it. So we're going to take a quick break right now and be back in just a minute right here on Ringler Radio with more on uh, traumatic brain injuries. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit ringlerassociates.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ringler Radio, everyone. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anne-Marie Von Bank, and, of course, our special guest, Attorney Gordon Johnson from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. 
course, he's one of the nation's leading brain injury advocates, and uh, we're so glad to have him here talking about this important subject. Gordon, at the Brain Injury Law Group, the uh, the BILG, you also work with clients who've suffered injuries from playing football and, and sports injuries. There's presently a wrongful death lawsuit against the Pop Warner organization by the family of a man who committed suicide, claiming that the suicide stemmed from head trauma uh, received in the game of football. Can you share with us the story of, uh, of that individual, uh, Joseph Chernock? Well, Joseph was a typical um, kid, you know, who liked to play sports. And he started playing Pop Warner in 1997 when he was 11 years old. And he played four years of Pop Warner football and four years of high school football. He also wrestled and pole vaulted. He was an outstanding athlete. He was relatively small, but he, you know he played in small, small schools in, in Upper Michigan and played his Pop Warner in Wisconsin and Michigan. And he was a good athlete. He played hard, loved the sport, um, banged his head against other players probably a little more often than most because he played harder than most. Uh, um, when he graduated from, from high school, he was still a good student. He um, did well in his ACTs, went off to Central Michigan University, and in all likelihood um, would have done well there and graduated um, and gone off and had a productive life. The problem is somewhere between 18 and 20, the cumulative effect of all of those um, blows playing football um, started to catch up with him, and his behavior began to change, and his ability to trust um, other people and ability to get along with other people really deteriorated, and he started to struggle um, cognitively in his classes, and he went from being a decent student to a crummy student to dropping out, and in the years after he dropped out, he had significant um, behavioral, psychiatric paranoia symptoms, which ultimately drove him away from his friends and damaged all of his personal relationships with his family and put him into a cycle of despair that there was really no way for him to, he didn't feel any way for him to resolve it other than suicide and he killed himself at 25. Mm-hmm. Now, when after he was, after he died, his family had an autopsy done on his brain and it turned out that he had the same type of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in his brain um, that many of the famous football players who committed suicide had done as well. And the the CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy in his brain, was actually quite severe for someone who was only 25. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, you you trace that back to the Pop Warner days. I mean, I, I guess my, the question m- many would have is how do you – how do you begin to identify the stage at which that began to occur, maybe with uh, coaching or, or training or equipment? Uh, how, how do you look at that when you try to evaluate the timing of, of when those uh, events occurred? There's no way to separate separate out which CT he, he got playing Pop Warner versus playing high school football. It's pretty clear that the overwhelming majority of the risk factors, the exposures he had to the type of trauma that would cause CTE would have been playing football. But certainly he got some of his CTE playing um, high school football, but there's no way to determine that. But what's significant is we look at this case and then as we look at how this case impacts 
other choices and other people's decision to let their children play football is it's the years between 11 and 14 when he was the most vulnerable to CTE. Those injury, those collisions, even if they were not as severe as the ones he had in high school, those collisions are he's much more vulnerable to a bad result. The brain is still developing, pathways are being laid down, um, the structures are not as strong, the body is not as strong, um, he's not as resistant to the flow, the the blows. So he's much more vulnerable. So that even if we were looking at 50% of the contact was in high school and 50% of the contact was in Pop Warner, um, it's the contact in those early years that are where he's the most most susceptible. And the probabilities are it's those years that he got the worst of of the CTE or began the process, mm-hmm. which ultimately resulted in CTE. Well, Gordon, for our audience, are, are the are the symptoms that you're seeing and 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 these injuries that you're you're seeing as you do these uh, autopsies on the brains of, of football players are they similar to the uh, the combat folks as well? I and mean, are those things are are the effect and cause and symptomatic uh, relationships there similar? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between um, identifiable single event brain injuries and brain damage that comes as a result of cumulative hits. Now, if you're talking about, let's say, myself, for example, I was thrown from a car and had one very distinct brain injury. It was mild to moderate in severity, and it's still I have still markers of that injury in my brain. And they do an MRI, and they can see where I damaged my brain at that time. Um, most combat brain injuries are going to be more of the specific injury type. But there are situations where you're going to get something much more similar to what you have on a football field, which is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of subconcussive blows. If you're in a situation like we saw in World War I, where people were getting mortars lobbed at them day after day, week after week, year after year, and they're being exposed to those blasts, um, repetitively, you might very well see something similar to what we see in these um, repetitive hit type injuries that you get in CTE. The boxer is is the um, the gold standard, so to speak, of what how do you get dementia pugilistica? You know, you get hit in the head throughout a boxing career. At the end, you're going to wind up to be punch drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the pattern for CTE. Now, if the combat veteran has similar situations where he is constantly being exposed to those blast traumas, he may more likely wind up in a CT profile than someone who's recovering from a concussion or a brain injury. Yeah. Gordon, how can brain injuries be prevented on the field and in combat? With better technology, is there equipment, protective gear? What are you seeing? I mean, we can, you know, you cannot prevent all brain injuries because life causes brain injury. We can't, you know, you can walk out of the building today, slip on ice, it hits your head, and you're going to, you know, you'll likely have a brain injury, and we can't eliminate all those risks. And we certainly do not want to eliminate all the risks of concussion in sport. But we need to think about eliminating the sports where the goal is to knock the opponent down. If the goal is to knock the opponent down, then what you're getting is not an accidental injury. You're getting a good play. An injury is a result of a good play. Now, 
Our 18-year-olds is vulnerable to getting you know, long-term brain damage from being knocked down by their opponent as 12-year-olds. No, they're not. And if we're going to have a continuum of prevention, and that's all we can have is a continuum of prevention, we should do those things that we can do that eliminate the worst of the risk, do a better job of guarding against the risk, and then make sure that those people who are going to take the risk are properly warned and properly taken care of if it happens. So so essentially, better helmets aren't really the answer, although they would help. But uh, you would probably, if I'm right, be thinking of more of advocacy for, let's say, flag football in the younger years up into a certain age group. Is that more more accurate? It's funny. I was listening to, to Mel Brooks on the uh, on the radio last week, and he said, here's my philosophy on football. Between 5 and 10, no football. Between 10 and 15, flag football. Between 15 and older, no football. (laughs) And that is is really what we're talking about. You just, there's no need to play this game on a tackle level until you're playing for something really big stakes. It's just too dangerous. There's Hundreds and hundreds of collisions every year that are causing some damage. Um, it's just not something we should let little children do, and we certainly shouldn't be letting people who are too small to sit in the front seat of a car do it. And that's they do at Pop Warner. They started 35 pounds. Yeah, I know you're you're coming up against it with 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 those uh, advocacy elements. I know you're coming up against opponents on on this side of the equation that say. Uh, Maybe maybe there's a better way to do it, but not the elimination of football. Or maybe there are, there are other rules that need to be put into place. Uh, that's that's got to be a big tussle for for folks on your side of the argument, looking at football as a sport and what it means to our society. Tell us about that. Well, we are trying to get the dialogue out there. We want the decision to allow your child to play football is being made by you know a million parents a year. We want those parents to understand what's at stake. Um, you know, the louder our critics, um, the more parents who are going to ultimately listen to us. Um, the, the goal is to have fewer and fewer people taking this risk and taking it at, at, at older and older, begin to take it at older and older rate, ages. And, and that's the goal. Well, but isn't there a, a risk of having, you know, adverse selection here? In other words, maybe parents from more affluent communities with looking at this from a, from a, a little different perspective might say, I'm going to put my kids in soccer or I'm going to put my kids in, in uh, tennis or fencing. Uh, but what about the lower income uh, areas where for a lot of these kids, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a dream of a way out of that environment by playing football. And how are you going to be dealing with, with the the tugs and pulls from the that that area, that arena. Well, here's the reality: one, you have, you have two million children playing a dangerous sport, so that they may play in the NFL. Um, there are two to three thousand people who play in the NFL. So what you're talking about is a thousand people playing the game, risking their long-term mental health and their brain. For the cha- for one out of a thousand of those is ever going to play NFL football, um, you know that's not a very efficient way to equalize income in our society. It's not a very good way out. Right, but I know Anne Marie and I see uh, 
injuries all the time, bad injuries, uh, head injuries. And uh, you know, we saw this back with the tobacco uh, cases where people were warned, but maybe not warned enough in time. And then some people didn't take the advice and some people were addicted and, and moved on. So you always have societal issues that, that come into play, you know, facing, you know, medical realities. And uh, I'm just sensing that as you move forward, perhaps it's only through litigation that some of these changes are really going to take place, uh, whether in school districts or, or Pop Warner or other places. Uh, it's kind of where you're heading on the litigation side that's going to really make the difference. Is that right? That's what, you know, that's what I, why I do what I do. I do believe that the tobacco litigation has made our, our country healthier. I do believe that litigation against automobile manufacturers have made cars safer. And I believe that litigation against football will ultimately reduce the number of people who wind up with suicide or severe behavior problems as young as 25 years old. Well, Gordon, if someone is suffering from a traumatic brain injury or, or some of our audience members know anyone who is, what what should their what should their next step be from a legal standpoint if they want to engage in that process? How do they how do they go about that? Well, there's only litigation involving brain injury if the reason the person got hurt is that there was some type of wrongful conduct of someone else. Now, for example, um, if your child has just committed suicide and God hope that that never happens again. If you really believe that there's something unexplained about why that happened, get an autopsy done on their brain. If it's abnormal and it shows CTE, then it's not hard to figure out where the where the where it came from. If you're in a car wreck and the other driver caused the injury, you know it's not important for litigation to get treated, but you need to get treated. But then when you start to realize what's happening, then you need to consider litigation to be properly compensated. That's why we have a tort system, is so that people who wrongfully injure someone else um, are required to pay compensation. Um, obviously, in the military, it's a different situation because it's the military's responsibility to do their best to get people healthy again for making these sacrifices for their country. No question. Well, in closing, uh, you know, Gordon, you've, You've been involved in the comprehensive interviews with dozens of TBI survivors through the TBI Voices Initiative, and you've personally taken away from working with traumatic brain injury survivors and as an advocate, uh, just lots of information and, and, and lots of, I'm sure, empathy as well. What words of uh, wisdom have you, do you have for the, for the audience here based on all of that interaction you've had with the TBI uh, people who have been involved in that? We like to think in terms of a lifetime of recovery. I know as I look at myself, I have a lifetime of recovery. Um, the key is you have to find ways to reintegrate yourself into the world without putting yourself into the type of stress that's going to have a decompensation. It's very important that people with a brain injury don't give up. They have to think about a lifetime of recovery. And recovery means relearning the things that you learned as a child and getting back to the, the it's obvious things and the not-so-obvious things about the difference between ourselves as 10-year-olds and 25-year-olds. In many ways, the best place to do that is school because school is there to learn, and it's also an opportunity to learn those social skills, the interaction with other people. 
for me, my recovery that I went to law school was key because if I had not gone to law school, I might have gone through the same deterioration and decompensation that happened to Joseph Chernock. Well, that's interesting uh, and and tremendously uh, important for all of our audience folks to hear. Never to give up and to continue to pursue those uh, those elements that are going to help you in the recovery process. Gordon, it's been uh, very enlightening, and I'm so glad we had you here on Ringler Radio. If someone wanted to get in touch with you to further discuss this or talk to you on, about legal issues, how would they get in touch with you? Well, the best place to find us is on the website, braininjuryhelp.com. All one word, braininjuryhelp. Well, that's great. That's terrific. And Anne-Marie, if someone wanted to talk to you, how would they do that? Um, best way is our 800 number, 800-332-3401, and our website, ringlerassociates.com. Well, that's great. And of course, all of you out there can reach any Ringler Associate on ringlerassociates.com. Uh, I encourage you to go to the website. It's got some tremendous uh, information on it. And uh, you can also hear all the Ringler radio shows. They're all listed on ringlerassociates.com. They're also on ringlerradio.com or legaltalknetwork.com. Or you can find them in iTunes, where you can uh, download any of the shows. And we've got hundreds of shows on uh, lots of interesting topics like today's. Uh, you just can download them on your iPod or your device and uh, listen to them at your leisure. And uh, I think you'll find, uh, like this show, that there's a lot of interesting information that will help you uh, in your everyday dealings in the business world, in the legal world, and in your own life. So with that, uh, Gordon, I want to thank you again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Larry. And Anne-Marie. Yes, thank you. Anne-Marie, thanks for the being a great co-host. By the participants Absolutely. Of this program thanks for are having their me. Own, Terrific. None of the content and for all the rest of you out there, go have always, a great day. consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today.